Welcome to Hollywood in Color, where I tell the stories of the stars usually left out of entertainment history, the people of color in front of and behind the camera who have been representing for over a century. I'm your host, Diana Martinez. You're listening to episode two of a five-part season on actresses Lupe Velas and Dolores Del Rio. If you missed episode one, I suggest going back and starting there. But here's a quick recap for all of us to refresh our memories. Last episode, we spent some time in Lupe and Dolores' childhoods in 1900s Mexico, catching a glimpse of how their lives changed when revolution broke out. Lupe's father fought with the revolutionaries against Mexico's richest. Dolores' family saw their wealth slowly dwindle away as the movement became stronger and the fighting fiercer. But they still found moments of joy. For both of them, performing, dancing, was a figurative escape that would become a literal one. Dolores' moves enthralled American director Edwin Carew, while Lupe's presence on stage convinced actor Richard Bennett she was perfect for a role in his new film. Lupe, motivated by her desire to take care of her family, leapt at the chance. Dolores and her husband, Jaime, were struggling to satisfy themselves creatively and financially in Mexico. So without a beat of hesitation, they also hopped on the train to Los Angeles. Dolores' ascension to stardom was fast, very fast. She made a name for herself before she ever had a starring role, and she earned that starring role only months after meeting Carew. Dolores' career spanned two decades. But in this episode, we're only looking at the pivotal first four years. fully understand Dolores' career path through the latter half of the 1920s, we have to understand also what Los Angeles and America were like when she arrived. Los Angeles was home to tens of thousands of Mexicans who, like Dolores, saw opportunity in a territory that not too long ago had belonged to their ancestors. Film was a way for Mexicans to negotiate their own identities and a way for white Americans to project onto them fears and anxieties they had about community, difference, and national identity. Amidst this, Dolores was also going through her own identity crisis. Dolores became a transnational superstar, but that wasn't without some sacrifices. Under Carew's wing, she undergoes a makeover where she seemingly leaves behind her Mexicanidad and assumes a refined Spanish identity. Hollywood ate this up. But Dolores wasn't always happy with this image. 
As this episode unfolds, Dolores' feelings about her Mexicanidad, her supposed Spanishness, and living in California converge into a complicated and confusing mess that was likely shared by other immigrants at the time. Today, we get to the stuff that drew me to Dolores, to this project, in the first place. So much of the history that follows feels like headlines from yesterday's newspaper or predicts the storylines of tomorrow's movie premiere. There's continuity here, and sometimes it's sad and difficult, but it's important to hear. This is episode two of Lupe Vélez and Dolores Del Rio, Las Reinas, the Queens of Los Angeles. In the 1920s, foreign stars weren't rare in Hollywood. Polish Pola Negri and Chinese anime Wong, for example, were box office hits and regular staples of fan magazines. In fact, it was a time when audiences had an almost obsessive fascination with foreign things. But more specifically, there was a growing interest in Latin entertainment. Broadway was inspired by Latin American narratives and music, and in the American West, white audiences were hearing Latin-influenced songs and maybe spending their free time learning to dance the tango. They flocked to the newly installed movie theater to watch footage of the Mexican Revolution for the first time. Newspaper moguls the Hearst family owned millions of acres of land in Mexico. When the Mexican Revolution began, they sought ways to combine film technology with the news to appeal to audiences' desire for tales of adventure set in exotic locales. So they turned to the newsreel. They sent filmmakers with cameras to capture the bloodshed in seconds or minutes long footage. Sometimes filmmakers were successful. Other times their candid news footage was more of an elaborate reenactment based on something they heard had happened. But either way, audiences had unprecedented access to the war. Revolutionary Pancho Villa was one of the first political figures to recognize the power of film and shaping public sentiment. He signed an exclusive contract with Mutual Film Corporation, a company whose claim to fame is usually their film starring comedians Charlie Chaplin, Mabel Normand, and Harold Lloyd. Villa let actor-director Raul Walsh and the rest of the crew of the film The Life of General Villa follow him around Mexico as he roused more supporters. Villa even made his men wear the uniform of the Federales, the enemy, in order to restage battles for the cameras. Newsreels about the revolution vacillated between sympathizing with the revolutionaries or depicting them as dangerous, lawless bandits. In the preface to her book about these newsreels, Margarita de Orellana explains why. She says, The newsreels reflect official American policy towards the Mexican Revolution, a policy marked predominantly by inconsistency. 
the American government, led by different parties during this time, supported Madero during his revolution and then played a key role in his fall. It supported Victoriano Huerta, who assassinated Madero, and then did its utmost to depose him. It backed Pancho Villa and fellow revolutionary Venustiano Carranza, and subsequently turned against both of them. As the revolution went on, its depiction wasn't just contained to newsreels. The Life of General Villa, starring Raoul Walsh in the title role, premiered on May 9, 1914, ahead of a wave of fictional films that would focus on Villa and the war. There were cartoons made that showed Villa being thrown into trash heaps, having his iconic sombrero stolen, and attempting to assault white women only to be thwarted by a noble American hero. These films flattened out Villa's political goals, smoothed over the jagged contours of the revolution, and amplified what white Americans already thought, that Mexican men were innately violent, treacherous, and lustful. The depiction of Villa, especially as the war went on, paralleled the emergence of a Mexican movie type that appeared predominantly in Westerns. The greaser stock character created an easily legible iconography for audiences and became the default way to represent Mexican men. Usually played by an actor in brownface, the greaser dressed in a poncho and sombrero, had dark skin and a thick mustache. The villainous greaser took pleasure in wreaking havoc and being unusually cruel. Mexican women were depicted as the victims of Mexican men's prurient interests. To audiences, it was easy to see why they aroused men prone to lust. They were exotic and sensual with flowing raven hair and overflowing bosoms accentuated with corseted folk costumes. But senoritas were chaste. In films like 1911's Saved by the Flag and his Mexican Sweetheart released in 1912, they were chased around and assaulted by Mexicanos, but their true passion could only be unlocked by the right American man. Mexican women characters, though conforming to some white ideals of femininity, like chastity and obedience, were still depicted as being motivated by desire and treachery. They were willing to turn their back on their country, family, and sometimes husbands for a white man. Thus, they were the perfect war prizes, but they were too fickle to be wives and partners. Though these types weren't born in film, movies made the stereotype available to a mass audience, including those who couldn't read the books that popularized contempt for brown people. The fictional representation of Mexicans was used to justify the very real subjugation of people. In this case, to justify manifest destiny and the violent wresting of land, resources, and history from Mexicans. Author Walt Whitman echoed the prevailing sentiment of the day when he wrote, What has miserable, inefficient Mexico with her superstition, her burlesque upon freedom, 
What has she to do with the great mission of peopling the new world with a noble race? Curiously, since Hollywood began, it has been a global enterprise that has seemingly actively worked to alienate a large portion of its audience. In the early years of Hollywood, like now, there was pushback from non-white audiences concerned with how they were being represented. Mexicans in America, because they didn't have any formal representation in the U.S., wrote to politicians back home expressing their distaste for the greasers, bandidos, and 'er ne'er-do-wells that they saw on screen. In Mexico, Hollywood films made up about 80% of the stuff they saw in theaters, and they were also unhappy. In fact, the distrust of the movie industry went back even to the Diaz regime. Diaz prevented Americans from filming in Mexico for fear they would take that footage and weave it into a questionable narrative about poverty and lawlessness. In 1922, newly elected Mexican president Álvaro Obregón needed to repair the country after the first wave of revolution. He needed to strengthen the economy by encouraging tourism and stirring foreign investment. Hollywood's representation of Mexico was making his job really difficult. The Minister of Foreign Relations even stated, The cinema, and almost exclusively the cinema of the United States, was the most efficient vehicle for the discredit with which Mexico is presented to the world. Obregón warned the MPPDA, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association, that the country would stop importing and exhibiting American films unless they pulled offensive films from theaters. One particularly objectionable film was called Her Husband's Trademark, released in February 1922 and starring Gloria Swanson. According to the American Film Institute's catalog of feature films, the film goes like so. Socialite New Yorker James Berkeley and college chum Alan Franklin are rivals for the hand of the beautiful Lois Miller. Berkeley marries her and, 15 years later, he keeps his wife luxuriously attired as a trademark to further his business opportunities, although he has not realized his ambition to become wealthy. Alan, now an engineer, visits the Berkeleys and reveals that he has obtained a large tract of oil land from the Mexican government. Hoping to profit from Alan's enterprise, James accompanies him back to Mexico and brings the reluctant Lois along to keep Alan interested. When Alan and Lois realize their love for each other, she denounces James for using her as a trophy wife. But then, a Mexican bandit who covets the American woman leads his gang to capture Lois at an hacienda, and James is slain during the attack. Alan rescues her, and they escape Mexico by leaping on horseback from a precipice into the Rio Grande. When Paramount Pictures refused to shelve the film, 
Obregón made good on his warning. He banned the film in Mexico and all other films distributed by Paramount. Soon, other distributors joined the list. One citizen praised the decision in a letter to the Mexican consul. It is time to teach these film men a lesson, causing them to lose the most money possible. This is the only way to make them understand. For studios, what was so threatening was not exactly losing Mexico's business. Mexico only accounted for 2% of Hollywood's $200 million in international grosses. But Mexico had powerful allies like Argentina and Brazil that were lucrative and vital for Hollywood to maintain dominance in the Latin American market. As the so-called gateway to Latin America, Mexico was in a good political position to make demands. And they were heard, to an extent. In November 1922, eight months after the boycott began, Obregón signed an agreement with the MPPDA that stated distributors would cease using stereotypical and harmful depictions of Mexicans. And in return, Mexico would lift the embargo and initiate measures to fight film piracy. In April 1922, her husband's trademark was one of the first films to make changes to accommodate this agreement. All mentions of Mexico were replaced with the fictional country of Cristobana. The Rio Grande became El Rio Blanco. Other films used the same strategy that was ultimately lazy and unsuccessful. The stereotypical iconography of Mexico and its people had been etched so deeply in film that audiences knew what was implied, even if the names were changed. An easy way for Hollywood to continue to disavow its treatment of Mexicans was that there were more than a few Mexicans actually working in Hollywood. Gilbert Rowland, Ramon Ovaro, and Lupita Tovar were working actors when Dolores arrived in 1925. But when Dolores made her starring debut in 1926's Pals First, she didn't quite fit into what audiences were expecting of a Mexican señorita. Though the film has been lost, reviews of it tend to focus on her appearance more than anything. One critic commented, Her Latin type, for one thing, does not jibe with the aristocratic Southern atmosphere. In addition to which, Ms. Del Rio's personal accomplishments as a screen actress are negative. Her eyes, of Oriental type, are an odd combination with the Spanish features. It wasn't long after that that Carew, along with Dolores' new agent Henry Wilson, decided to do a makeover in order to appeal to American audiences. This meant taking her dowdy, Mexican look and transforming it into an aristocratic, Spanish style inflected with modern sophistication. They hired Peggy Hamilton, a designer who had crafted Gloria Swanson's high fashion look, 
to create Dolores's wardrobe, change her makeup, and put her on a diet. When she had been perfected, Hamilton was also in charge of introducing Dolores to society by throwing huge parties in her name. Dolores' ethnicity was significantly modified by an over-association with Spanish nobility, which, in truth, was the background of her husband, Jaime. But this may have been kind of a smart strategy. Carew himself was biracial. His father was white, and his mother was Chickasaw. As a successful director and producer, he knew how to navigate Hollywood from the outside— and was equipped to help Dolores navigate Hollywood as well. He chose to downplay her ethnic difference by playing up her wealth and privilege. Her life became aspirational rather than a curiosity. It was certainly its own burden, but possibly one that Carew saw as preferable. Fan magazines were rife with details of her past straight from Carew and Wilson. Some things were real. Other things were more of an exaggeration. Other things were complete fabrications. For example, one story that circulated widely was that she kept Pancho Villa's sombrero as a prized possession after the war. Dolores' transformation was successful. Her breakout hit came in 1926 when she starred in Raoul Walsh's What Price Glory, where she played Charmaine, a French barmaid. Critics raved about her performance, and soon she was featured prominently in the pages of fan magazines. And by 1927, Dolores had been dubbed the leader of the Latin invasion. The response to her fame and her looks was markedly different from a few years before. One writer noted, There is not a feature nor a line in all of Del Rio's physical and mental makeup suggestive of the peasant. Every line and curve of her slender, lithe, beautifully proportioned, dainty body and queenly little head is the perfect essence of many generations of aristocratic breeding. The fiery pride of high-caste Castellan ancestors is in the quiver of her delicate nostrils. With her conservative dress, long hair, and demure demeanor, Dolores was the veritable antidote to the new woman of the 1920s, with their shorter dresses, bobbed hair, and increasing outspokenness. Dolores represented class and glamour, as this was falling away. But that also meant she represented Mexicanness as quaintly stuck in the past, an artifact of a bygone era. Even when Dolores' success seemingly challenged negative stereotypes of Mexicans, it only did so by claiming her proximity to whiteness. For example, fan magazines conveniently elided the fact that Dolores was an immigrant. As scholar Victoria Sturdivant notes, The specific codes of upper-class existence that defined Dolores marked her as a visitor in Hollywood, an ambassador from her country 
rather than an immigrant with all the illegitimacy, ethnic pollution, and permanency that designation would imply. By erasing any trace of Mexican indigeneity and replacing it with European cosmopolitanism, Dolores found her persona, her space, within Hollywood. But like other foreign stars of the time, she was still foreclosed the possibility of ever playing on film or being accepted as an American. Which was cool with Dolores. Never will I become an American citizen. Never, she declared. Dolores was proud of being Mexican. On occasion, she would get fed up with maintaining her quaint image and corrected reporters when they called her Spanish. She worried about exposing too much of her body on screen, not just because she was modest, but because she didn't want to contribute to the hypersexualization of Mexican women on screen. She was respected for her refusal to become a gringala, whitewashed. In 1927, the American-Spanish newspaper La Opinión declared her one of five Mexicans who give prestige to la raza. And that was, in fact, her aim. She said, What Hollywood needs is a high-society Mexican woman, one who may have been exposed to foreign culture and customs through travel, but who maintains our customs and the traces of our Mexican land. And then the vulgar picturesque type, so damaging because it falsifies our image, will disappear naturally. This is my goal in Hollywood. All my efforts are turned toward filling this gap in cinema. If I achieve this, it will be the height of my artistic ambition and perhaps a small glory for Mexico. Dolores' goals were compatible with the goals of other Mexican immigrants who came to America not to assimilate, but to preserve their lives from the path of war. Another popular name for Los Angeles was Mexico de afuera, Mexico outside itself. In fact, it was the movement away from the country of origin that solidified for a lot of immigrants their Mexican identity. Durangueños from Durango or Sonoruenses from Sonora became Mexican. An unwelcoming place made them fast friends. Mexicans disproportionately didn't become American citizens. And as historian Douglas Monroy points out, the Americanos did and did not appreciate this situation. The presence of apparently unassimilating immigrants made them nervous and offended the notion that everyone should want to become an American. But so too did the specter of too many Mexicans joining their country. Boosters, promoters of California State, actively campaigned throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s for more of the right people to travel west instead, meaning white people, which, to be clear, also excluded to an extent Italians, Poles, Jews, and anyone with a non-Western European heritage. 
The boosters turned to story, photography, and film to market Southern California as a forward-thinking city amidst a picturesque landscape steeped in history. In 1928, Dolores starred in Ramona, an adaptation of the 1884 best-selling novel by Helen Hunt Jackson. Dolores stars in the titular role, a young orphan of mixed ethnicity, she's Native American and white, raised by her foster mother, Senora Moreno. The Morenos are well off, profiting from their sheep farm, and Senora Moreno insists that Ramona behave herself like an upper-class woman to make up for her innate savagery. When shearing season comes, Ramona falls in love with a Native American worker named Alessandro. They elope and run away. They have a child and soon are beset with problem after problem. European settlers take land from Alessandro's tribe. The couple confronts racism and humiliation. Alessandro goes mad. Defeated, Ramona returns to Rancho Moreno and marries Felipe, her foster brother. Author Helen Hunt Jackson was an advocate for Native Americans, a journalist, and a social critic, and the latter half of Ramona attempts to depict the injustice and racism Native Americans experienced at the hands of white settlers. All the events and people in the novel were based on real situations and historical figures. Jackson knew that if she could tell her story in a compelling way, it could galvanize others to fight for Native rights. But that's not quite what happened. The book was a huge success, but Ramona was too effective as a love story. What Jackson saw as a carefully realized setting and context, readers saw as an exotic backdrop to a romance. What Jackson thought was a prescient, timely story of the exploitation of indigenous peoples, readers saw as a story set in a time long, long ago. The boosters, though, were thrilled. Since most everyone knew Jackson's book was based on real places and people, with the help of the boosters, the book became a tour guide of California, with fans from around the country visiting the inspiration for Rancho Moreno in San Diego or laying flowers at Ramona and Alessandro's first home in Temecula. Southern California was the backdrop for a new kind of Western fairy tale and everyone wanted to live in it. Ramona, the novel and subsequent film, was vital in rewriting California history and did for the state what Carew and Wilson had done for Dolores, painted over the not-so-distant past with fantasy and myth. California's Makeover was a statewide effort that not only recast history, but redefined the Los Angeles aesthetic. Waiting patiently 
Novels and films, plays, fairs, tourist routes, and new real estate developments romanticized what scholar Phoebe Kropp describes as an idyllic golden age, a picturesque land of pious padres and placid Indians, of dashing caballeros and sultry señoritas. Architects created a Spanish colonial style that could be applied to houses and state landmarks. Dilapidated missions were rebuilt as grander institutions that didn't resemble at all the original ramshackle structures built by Franciscan missionaries. Historian Carrie McWilliams argues that this romanticized history covered up the true human cost of colonization and that American reverence for this imagined past constituted a fantasy heritage that functioned to deprive the Mexicans of their past and to keep them in their place. Similarly, California historian William Deverell claims that Los Angeles, once part of Mexico itself, came of age through appropriating, absorbing, and occasionally obliterating the region's connections to Mexican places and Mexican people. Given the extent to which California, Los Angeles, and Hollywood went to rewriting Mexican heritage into Spanish fantasy, it's perplexing that Lupa Velas remained Mexican throughout her career. She never got away from her heritage. She was called the Mexican monsoon, the Mexican pepper pot, the Mexican wild kitten, and later in her career, the Mexican spitfire. In next week's episode, we turn our attention back to Lupe. The stark contrast between the trajectory of Lupe's career and Dolores's is apparent, just looking back superficially to their breakthrough roles. Dolores made her mark as a French barmaid, Lupe as the wild mountain girl in the Douglas Fairbanks film El Gaucho. Lupe had her fans, but it also seemed that audiences believed the rumors about her promiscuity, her crudeness, and her classlessness. She was too much of the bad stuff, and not enough of the things that would make her a good representative of her people. In a widely circulated anecdote, a film fan was asked who of the two he preferred. The man replied, Del Rio, sí. Vélez, no. Scholars and fans like to point to Lupe's films to either confirm or deny what they already think of her. For some, she conforms to derogatory stereotypes and is an example of how Hollywood uses stars of color only to make stereotypes more real to put a face onto the ideas white Americans already held about Mexican women. But for others, her performance is just that, a performance. She's the woman who launched a thousand tabloid stories, but rarely, if ever, spoke in her own voice. I'm not really interested in judging her. And so episode three will look at the films early in her career, trying to find not the good, not the bad, 
but the truly human Lupe. This episode of Hollywood in Color has been produced, edited, and narrated by me, Diana Martinez. All artwork for the show was designed by Shelby Mooring. Every episode of this podcast is heavily researched. If you want info on the books, articles, and sources I used, check out the show notes. There, you'll also find info about the theme song and other music used in this episode. If you liked this episode and want to keep up with what's next, follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at hwoodincolor. And with that said, I can't wait to tell you another chapter of our story next week.